Good. Uh, okay, so these are in no particular order as um, we've got a flurry of questions that came in um, towards the end of Rich's talk, so apparently you're the controversial one. Uh-oh. Uh, okay, let's start with your punchline. You said, headship and respect are not only the key to a peaceful marriage, they are erotic necessities. How does that play into the relationship before marriage, if that's the dynamic within marriage, preparing for that kind of dynamic? Um, before young man and young woman are married, uh, even when in that first stage that, that Michael referred to, that, that kind of interested but not exclusive, is that, is that a, a dynamic there as well? You're dealing with before marriage. Maybe you should take on. this one. But the one thing I would say is that when a, when a, when a woman is considering a man as a future husband, that's the big question she needs to ask is, do, do I find myself respecting this man, admiring this man? Would I find it hard to follow this man, or do I want to follow this man? And if she doesn't, then you know, take it, it's a hard pass. Uh, so that's the key thing for her. Uh, and I would say that that's like when, she, when, and of course, you know, no doubt she would need some help in vetting a man and, and all that. But uh, I would say that that's the key kind of question she needs to ask herself is, do I see myself um, respecting this man and following this man and that not being a huge chore to me? Is the question whether or not she should be attracted to him, like turned on? by him prior at the beginning? Is that really what's being asked? Right, how can you discern headship as, as a basis, um, kind of pre-marriage? Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what Rich said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, okay, so it was said that, that folk wisdom, or traditional wisdom, I think this is something you mentioned, uh, Michael, is among, are among those things that have been washed away in the yeah. cultural tsunami. So what are some specific kinds of folk wisdom that we've lost and we need to recover. So let's first answer for young men and then for young women. Uh, anything that has to do with bodily presence is a big one. Uh, for example, uh, eye contact. Uh, they have trouble with this. They've been hiring actors to help people learn how to keep eye contact and, and make people feel comfortable in, in boardrooms when they're doing negotiation. And it's become such a big problem that uh, in police, policing, they're having guys go out and interact with people and then people critique how they do it because in policing, you, you're, you're reading people, right? You're, you're feeling intuitively what's going on as you approach a car. You're looking at their body language. Um, and, but when your whole life's been mediated through a screen or large portions of it has been mediated to a screen, you don't, um, you don't know how to read that. Uh, emojis, right, these little faces or whatever, is us trying to add that to a, a screen-mediated existence to communicate tone or whatever. So one area is just like how to, how to stand, how to shake hands. Uh, I'll give you a humorous example. Um, I was telling a guy that he should probably work on his eye contact. He was always like kind of shifty, not looking uh, with people because he was uh, insecure. And I said, yeah, you, you need to be able to hold eye contact. And uh, I saw him like months later. Actually, I met him at the Stronghold Conference. Oh, okay. So I saw him months later. And uh, man, he was like, he was like intense, like just staring at me. <laughs> and I, I forgot that's what I had said to him. So we were talking a little bit. I said, so how's, you know, how's dating going? 
He's like, it's going good. Women say I'm kind of intense. And I was like, <laughs> you are. Uh, blink, break the contact. <laughs> Where is this going? Are you going to go in for a kiss? I don't know what's happening. Um, but there's this sort of awkward learning how to, um, how to carry yourself that's really hard, I think, right now. So that'd be one example of just uh, things that are generally transmitted uh, from father to son, uncle to son, you know. A lot of the stuff that we're talking about, you could find in the cumulative wisdom of a 1920s bar, right? Um, that's, that's where we're at. So that'd be one example. I don't know what else you'd say to... Well, I, I, I think you're exactly right. A lot of this folk wisdom has been uh, lost. I would say we have a repository of it remaining in grandparents. Yeah. Hmm. And I would, I, just because somebody's old doesn't mean they're wise, obviously. Uh, but if you have godly grandparents, I would say, you know, anybody that grew up even one generation ago, but especially two or three generations ago, is still going to have probably a much better understanding of sexual dynamics uh, than what people are getting today. I mean, when I sit down with a young person today and, and they want to have this conversation, I basically say, okay, look, the first thing you have to recognize is that everything you think you know about male-female interactions is wrong. Mm -hmm. So start, let's just start over, because probably everything you think you know is bad information. Um, you know, you said a 1920s bar. I think a lot of, you know, a lot of men are turning to the red pill sources, yeah. manosphere, that kind of thing, and a lot of that's very godless and unhelpful. But... Uh, I think the, the good stuff that can be found there is the stuff that a generation or two ago, you know, like you go back far enough in history, just everybody kind of knew it. Mm. You know, so, so I think you know, there, there are people out there that are trying to recover some of these things, some godless people included in that. Uh, but I would just say, you know, if you've got godly grandparents or older people in your church you can go talk to, I mean, like, um, I, I think that uh, oftentimes there's a lot of wisdom there that we, that we don't tap into that we should. See, the, the term toxic effeminacy has been mentioned as one of the problems with men in the household. So can we define our terms? What, what is effeminacy in men? It's, uh, it's a, a dog meowing. Right. It's, Unpack it's, that. Right. So uh, to be a woman is beautiful if you are, in fact, a woman. You should be feminine. It's great. Fe femininity is beautiful on women. It's repulsive on men. It's because it goes against nature. So effeminacy is where a man is taking on the posture, mannerisms, and, and goals of, of a woman. So a feminine man is a woman without a womb, right? Uh, <clears throat> so that's what it means to be effeminate. It's, uh, so you have malakoi and arsenicoite. So you have, the, you have actual homosexuality, but you have the culture that comes before that which is uh, throwing off masculine uh, duties and throwing off masculine characteristics, delaying maturity, not being responsible, all those sort of things. I mean, a big part of being a man is taking responsibility for others, right? Because you're a federal head, you're over a whole household. And as men grow as leaders, they, they become heads of multiple households, whether in the church or as a business leader in your community, et cetera. So effemacy is, uh, is taking something beautiful and twisting it because it goes against your nature. So it's, again, it's like a, a dog meowing, right? I, I don't have a feminine side, uh, unless you mean Emily. She is my feminine side, just like a dog doesn't have a feline side. 
Well put. Yeah, I would agree with all that. I would just add a couple things. In the uh, traditional discussions of effeminacy, like when Christian ethicists, you know, going back to say Aquinas or whoever, have taken up this issue, one thing that's been pointed out is that effeminacy is a lack of discipline. It's being obsessed with your own comfort and luxury. Uh, so a lack of self-control. Uh, it can be manifested in um, spinelessness, cowardice, you know, weakness that, that, that uh, you know, whereas I think men have an obligation to strengthen themselves. It's amazing when you start to look at how many commands there are in the Bible where people, people are told to make themselves strong. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, uh, Paul talks about weakness in 2 Corinthians, and so, you know, the kind of weakness that we have before God that's entirely appropriate. But time and time again, God commands his people to be strong. And so uh, the effeminate man is the man who has not done that. Um, so there's that. I would also say we have certain little slogans or ways of doing things that kind of reinforce uh, effeminacy in men. Um, like I'll give you one slogan, and, and, and often with these slogans, like there's a little grain of truth to it, and that's why it gets traction. But then when you actually look at how it's used, it's a real problem. Like here's one, happy wife, happy life, okay? Now, obviously, you know, Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 7 that spouses should seek to please one another. So seeking to, to please your spouse is a good thing. But I've seen this kind of slogan used a lot of times for husbands who think that basically to be a husband means I am a simp, if I can use that word. That's what the kids would say today. Uh, who is... And a uh, simp is... Well, uh, a man who is overly concerned with pleasing his wife all the time. And so he, he constantly defers. It's whatever you want, dear, whatever you say, honey. Well she comes to resent that, that doesn't actually please her because that's not giving her what she needs from you as a man. And I would say that's a form of effeminacy. Servant leadership is the same kind of way. Servant leadership is a beautiful and, 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 and brilliant and biblical concept that Jesus leads. And one of the ways he manifests his leadership is through serving us, through sacrificing for us. But again, this can get twisted in a certain kind of way where uh, it becomes... Um, doing whatever the other person wants you to do. And so to be a servant leader, the leadership part gets lost, and well, now I'm just your servant. And so now I'm no longer the head of the family. I'm sort of the family butler, and I just take orders from everybody else. Well, that leads to chaos. Uh, because actually what you find is that good leadership in any institution, any organization, uh, whether you're talking about a, a nation or a company or a ship or a football team or a household, Good leadership, wise, competent leadership is itself a gift and a form of service. So I think that's really, really important uh, to maintain. And the effeminate man is really, I think, embarrassed by his own manhood and embarrassed to assert himself uh, because he feels like, oh, if I assert myself, then I'm going to be tyrannical. But see, the, the thing about the servant leadership model is that it kind of allows the woman to always play a trump card. You know, because she can say anytime he is going, you know, anytime he says, we need to go this direction, honey, and she wanted to go that direction, she can say, well, you're not really loving me like Jesus would, because Jesus would give me what I want, right? Because we know that's what Jesus always does, right? He gives us everything we want. No, he doesn't. He doesn't always give us what, you know, what, what we want. In John chapter 6, Jesus has just offended all these people, who the multitudes that have come to him, and uh, of course, some of them were just coming to be fed. And he starts to say really hard things like, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and all the people leave. And then he looks at the disciples and says, are you guys going to go too? You know, there's the door if you want to leave. Because he is committed to a mission. He's committed to a mission, and it's not going to be dictated to him by what everybody, if you think of the people around him, the people that he's, you know, his 
bride, basically. Uh, his mission's not dictated by the bride. He has his mission, and then the bride's supposed to get on board with that. So I think, there's, I think effeminacy plays itself out in missionless men, purposeless men, men, men who are waiting to take orders rather than take responsibility and say, this is the direction we're going to go. It's the opposite of what Joshua does in chapter 24 when he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The effeminate man can't do that. Okay, so we've got your quintessential um, masculine man. He goes to the gym regularly. He hunts. He's a good mechanic, can work on his own car. Does he have any effeminacy problems? Has he solved them by having those you know, cultural artifacts? I would say, based on what you told me, I still have no idea whether or not this guy is effeminate. Because masculinity is not primarily hunting skills or mechanic skills. It is, there are skills, but the world is so big, there's so many different things we could master. What if he's a great computer programmer? You know, I mean, so I, I would just say the, the description you've given does not tell me whether he's really masculine or not yet. Uh, I'd, I'd have to know a lot Here's more. another angle to that. <clears throat> Think about weightlifting. If, um, so weightlifting can be incredibly effeminate if it's bodybuilding, right? Where it's like they go, not now, I'm talking about professional bodybuilders, the big veiny sort of thing, right? These guys, uh, when they, I have a lot of friends that have gone into that world, and uh, they don't get hit on as much by chicks as they do by gay guys, right? Like, or guys saying, hey, man, what's your routine? Or <laughs> getting uh, hit on. And part of what, the way I see that being effeminate, or potentially effeminate at least, is... Um, is that you're making yourself an object of beauty to be stared at, and the strength isn't turned outward at uh, production, right? It's more of a demonstration of, of your body, right? That's what you're, uh, so that's, it, it makes sense for a woman to display beauty in that way. It doesn't, to me, make sense for a man to do that, and, that, and it doesn't surprise me that a lot of times that it's, it's, um, it leads to them having a lot of homosexual guys hit on them. Uh, I think what's important is a man uses his skill to be productive. I think that's the idea of building up a household is so key. And you can do that with hunting skills, I guess. I have a friend that's a professional hunter. Um, but like Rich said, is you can take dominion by being a good coder. A lot of things. We don't need the world full of he-men, but we do need the world full of strong men. And, and that needs to, that's going to be contextual to your ability and providence and all that sort of stuff. You might have a man who goes hunting all the time, and it's just because he's trying to get out of the house because he has no leadership. You know, he's not exercising leadership there, so it's chaotic, and his wife is nagging him constantly, and so hunting is a way of just getting away from all of that. Well, that's effeminacy. You know, or you could have a man who goes out hunting because this is going to provide for his family so they can survive the winter. I mean, there's different, you know. So I, I think we have certain caricatures of masculinity that are problematic. Um, and again, there's a grain of truth in them. Um, I mean, I would say as a man, you want to be dominion-oriented. You want to acquire as many skills as you can as a man, I would say. You ought to be, you know, you talk about improving yourself. Think of life like a video game. You ought to be constantly leveling up. What are the new skills I can add? What are the, what are the new, uh, new ways that I can extend dominion for the good of others? But I think one thing that Michael hit on that's, that's exactly right is that for a man, the strength is going to be functional. Yeah. It's, going to, it's not going to be just to be, say, gazed at, but it's going to serve a purpose for the betterment of his household or the kingdom of God, however you want to look at that. You're making yourself better so you can do more for the sake of others. So you have a, a married couple and they've got a pattern. 
he tends to be passive, she tends to be dominant. Uh, how do they get unstuck? The good news, I would say, is that, uh, you know, it only takes one uh, to, 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 to get unstuck or to uh, at least sort of force certain issues. So I, I would tell a man in that case, you know, don't sit down and try to negotiate something with your wife because that still puts you in a position of sort of um, submissiveness. I would say start leading. Assert yourself. Um, be the man that you know you should be. And she may really push back hard against that at first, but one of the realities is, you know, I talked about the woman as the weaker vessel. I think one thing that women do sort of intuitively with men is test men. In fact, I would say anybody who's in a position of leadership should expect tests from those they seek to lead. Congregations do this with pastors in sessions. Um, sometimes employees will do this with a boss. Uh, players will do this with a coach. Uh, you will test your leadership to see what they're made of. And very often, a, a, a wife will sort of, you know, and I'm not saying this is sin because I think it's kind of a defense mechanism that's built into the way things are. She could do this in a disrespectful way. It could be sin, but it doesn't have to be. But where she might just push back to test his leadership and see if he really means it. So if every time he says, we're going to do, you know, A, and she raises an objection and says, what about B, and he immediately caves in, well, intuitively she's thinking, wow, this guy's weak, and if he can't stand up to me, then how's he going to stand up to anybody else? for me on my behalf and so that kind of, that kind of creates more anxiety or so, if he so, also reacts strongly to that, that test that's another demonstration yeah. of weakness yeah. of a lack of self-control yeah. and reinforce her doubts yeah so you know I, I you know i would say he ought to lead he ought to assert himself he ought to seek to be more decisive and it may take a while for her to get on board and there may be a lot of pushback for a while but he, he needs to stick with it. I think, I think what happens with a lot of men is they say, all right, I'm going to leave my family better, and then the first time there's any pushback, they just cave. And things are then actually worse than they were before. That's probably how they got stuck, you know, in the first place. Uh, so I would say that's what you have to do is just, you know, become the man you know you should have been all along and do those things. And that may make things seem like they're worse for a little bit. Um, but, you know, I... I uh, I think things like this, you know, one of my favorite books is The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. He tells the story of Chuck Yeager when he broke the sound barrier. Uh, and, you know, people didn't know if it could be done. They really talked about a sonic barrier because they'd get planes real close to Mach speed and they would just kind of shake apart. You know, it would just, you know, people wondered, can you even break the, uh, the speed of sound? And, and Yeager, who had only finished high school, was not a physicist or anything, but he just, he knew flying and he knew planes. And he just had this intuition that I think things shake really bad right up when you get to Mach 1, and then the other side is completely placid. Well, of course, it turned out he was exactly right. Uh, and so he got up in the Bell X-1 and, you know, breaks the, you know, breaks the sound barrier. And I think a lot of times that's how leadership is. There's a lot of chaos right before the calm. You know, there's a storm right before the calm, and you just have to press through it. But it can sometimes take the same kind of courage that it took Jaeger to get up in that plane and break the sound barrier. Okay, so we're running beyond time. We're probably going to get kicked out of here by All Saints here quickly, but uh, so I'm going to go into a kind of a lightning round, try to do quicker questions, quicker answers. Uh, do you have any basic rules of engagement when it comes to resolving conflict in marriage? Uh, my wife and I don't have any conflict, so I don't even know how to address that question. Uh, sure. Um, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and know that the wrath of man doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. Keep short accounts. Confess sin, forgive sin quickly. Good. Uh, Michael, in your writing and speaking, you bring up wrestling and physical discipline. Sure. 
what's the connection between physical fitness and spiritual health? Any biblical stories or teachings that you use to remind yourself to keep you going and push yourself when you're tired? Well, sure. Um, when you, uh, your body reflects your lifestyle, obviously, right? So uh, I've, I've traveled. I've, this is like my 30th trip, I think, this year. <laughs> and uh, my body reflects that. Um, but I, I think learning to discipline yourself. I mean, where you're disciplined is your appetites. You're disciplined where you spend your time. You know, a lot of times the reason we're out of shape is we're not getting enough sleep um, because we don't know how to walk away. We haven't created order in our life. Um, so it's kind of a feedback loop, really, that inner order and outer order, they feed each other after a while. You, you develop that. So it's God made us a spirit body composite, and when you work uh, on your body and you work uh, on your growing in virtue, those things feed each other. So, and uh, if there's disorder, you know, in your, like, for example, think of it this way. If there's, I don't need to really interview elders. I'll just interview their wife and children, and I'll know who the man is. I'm, I'm saying that kind of in jest, right? But they reflect what's going on. Uh, a lot of times the reason people are eating too much or drinking too much or not exercising or whatever is a manifestation of, of their anxiety, their lack of coming to God in prayer. Um, and so all those things, they, they, they come together. Also, men need to know that they can, uh, what I love about getting ordained in a really strict denomination is um, <clears throat> I always tell people the next day you should urinate blood after your ordination exam, right? It should be that intense, okay? But it's a rite of passage. Like, you know you can do it. You know you can go hard. And uh, a lot of times life isn't like that, but there are moments where you pull all-nighters for a reason. There's, uh, there's times where you have to maintain incredible focus because of the conflict you're in. Uh, so picking anything, it can, anything that's challenging. It can be weightlifting, it can be wrestling, it can be... Um, it can be tennis, you know, tennis is a frustratingly hard sport, um, but, uh, but learning to push yourself to find your limits, to test your limits, uh, is, is a good, good for men. It's good for both men and women, but especially for men, uh, because there's times we're called upon to go, go at things really hard. And you've had session meetings, right, where it's like five or six hours because there's something that's crazy going on in your church. And... You can't leave till it's done. So you better be able to, you know, hold your focus and attention. So all those things play out. We create weird dichotomies and dilemmas that just aren't real, you know. I'm trying to understand how the lightning round is different than what we were doing before. It's hard to cut them off. That's okay. well, quite a lightning strike. Yeah. Sorry about that. Okay, so Give next me question. lightning round question. <laughs> so much of, of what we've heard Friday night and this morning is countercultural, even in Christian circles today. So how should young men and women convey these concepts to friends and live in the world, in particular the Christian world, um, that they live in? I'll send links to this conference. Next question. <laughs> no, I don't know. Just do it. I mean, I would say just live it out. Uh, I think that uh, this, you know, living out masculinity for men or femininity for women, doing this, getting married and living in your marriage this way is its own best defense. Salt and light. That's what it is. Okay, so you talked about working hard. In terms of making money, what's the balance between working overtime, being consumed by work and money, uh, balancing that with, with risking family security and, and, and making sure you maintain uh, that, that uh, headship role in your family? I'm going to let you answer this question right now. 
<laughs> I can't say it's balanced in my life at this moment. Well, uh, yeah, and, and there may be seasons of life where it's yeah. not. You know, there may be seasons of life that, that you go through where you're not going to have the so-called work-life balance that people look for uh, or want. Um, and so long as you understand those sacrifices are, are for, you know, the long-term good and not a permanent thing, uh, you know, if, they're, if it's taking you away from, say, family life too much. Um, but, um, yeah, I'll just I'll leave it at All that. All right, I got one thing on this, real quick. When you're with your family, be with them. That's number one. And give them your full attention, put the phone away, and you can pull some long hours if everyone understands why you're doing it, and then when you're with them, that's exactly where you want to be, right? Well, they should feel like when you're at home that there's no other place you'd rather be. So when they know that you leave, you're only doing it because you need to. Good, thank you. So with that, we're going to end our Q&A. Uh, we have one more uh, hymn we're going to sing, and then Pastor Crawl, he's going to come and, and close us in prayer. But first, give a, give a round of applause for our speakers. <laughs>